Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. America has a love affair with the movies. We produce about 2,500 movies a year in America, and the vast majority of them employ stuntmen to one extent or another. And the truth is that America has a love affair with stuntmen. Come on, bring me the love this morning. Yeah, yeah. I had this shirt made just for this, in case you couldn't tell. Yeah, Uh, it got three claps, though. Ooh, Tom, thanks. Yeah, three claps. Stuntmen, we're in love with them because they're just flat-out cool. They're physically active. They're tough. They're fearless. They're what most men want to be. They're the ones who step in. They're the ones who step up whenever things get risky or dangerous on a movie set. If something is going to blow up, they bring in a stuntman. If there's going to be a car chase, they bring in several stuntmen. If they're going to stage an accident, bring in the stuntmen. If anybody is going to fall off of anything or jump off of anything or climb on top of anything or get hit by something, they bring in the stuntman. And fire... If there's going to be fire in a movie, then you can count on this. They are going to bring in stuntmen. And all of that stuff that I just listed is the stuff that makes movies tons of fun and exciting, right? Well, it's the stuntmen that we look up to in the movies. The actors, they get famous and they get rich, but they also get out of the way whenever something exciting or awesome is about to happen, and in comes a stuntman. Anytime that it seems that a celebrity might possibly skin their knee, the director says, cut. He sends in a stuntman, and the stuntman comes running in there and says, let me in there, because I can do that. Like in this scene that we're about to watch from one of the Indiana Jones movies from 2008, see if you can spot the stuntman. Were you able to spot the stuntmen? Only about a thousand of them in that scene, right? Wasn't that a great scene? Good old-fashioned brawl, motorcycle stunts, car chase, car crash, and in the middle of it all, some guy who clearly is not Harrison Ford being jerked off of a motorcycle into the car window, punches a few guys out, jumps out the other side, skeeches down the street behind the motorcycle before he eventually jumps back on board. That was fantastic. What is not to love, right? And all of that courtesy of an entire community of stuntmen. When we think of stuntmen, we think prepared, determined, courageous. We think of people who have developed their skills, who won't settle for anything short of success. They are people who will not shrink back. To put it another way, They are just flat out manly. And there's something in the heart of nearly every boy or man that at some point in his life thinks, I want to be a stuntman when I grow up. Why? Because a stuntman seems to be a person who has reached his full potential. The Bible is a collection of historical stories that are intended to help us get to know the God who made us and who wants to have relationship with us. Some of those stories are horrible. Some of them are rated R. You can't tell them with children present. There's some stories that I feel very uncomfortable sharing from the Bible when there are women around, not just men. 
But some of those stories recount the actions of great men and women whose faith was strong and who acted boldly on behalf of God and his people. And I kind of like to think of those people as the stuntmen of the faith. Prepared, determined, courageous, they refused to settle for anything less than what they knew God wanted. But the Bible tells at least as many stories of stunted men. People whose faith withered in the moment of testing. People who shrank back in fear or worry or unfaithfulness. They were people who never stepped into the destiny that God had dreamed for them before they were born. Why? Because their hearts were small. Because their faith was small, weak. The Bible is in some ways just a book of stunt men versus stunted men. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at some of the stuntmen of the Bible. Why? Because I have an agenda as your pastor. And that agenda is to equip our church to fulfill its God-given mission. Our mission is simple. Jesus said it, make more disciples. We believe that a disciple is someone who connects with God and other Christ followers, who grows in his or her faith, and who serves as a way of life. And over the next several weeks, I want to help you to grow in one specific area of your faith. It's in the area of character development. People paid attention to Jesus for a whole lot of reasons. Miracles capture people's attention. Free meals, they get people's attention. Powerful public speaking gets people's attention. Jesus did each of those things. But people also noticed something about Jesus' person. He was consistently involved in doing good, but he was also consistently involved in the lives of people who were not. Jesus invested himself in real relationship with broken, messed up, immoral people. But somehow, himself, he remained a good man, and in so doing, showed others how to live. Remember last week? We talked about this whole business of aspiring to be a man or a woman who just lives by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can look at the folks around us and say, just follow my example because I'm following the example of Christ. Jesus lived in a way that he served as an example to us. What do you call it when someone who is surrounded by evil and by temptation and maintains their personal goodness. What do we call that? We call it good character. Over the next several weeks, we're going to examine some examples of godly character among the stuntmen of the faith. And then we'll take a look at what it might possibly look like when we commit to becoming people of Christian character as well. So, welcome to the First Naz Stuntman Academy what we're going to do for the next few weeks. Well, today we're going to study our first lesson in Christian character together. We're going to learn about humility, and we're going to learn about it from the life of a man named Joseph. He and all of the stuntmen of the faith that we'll learn from over the next few weeks make appearances in the New Testament book called Hebrews, specifically in chapter 11. But Joseph's life story is really in just told in very abbreviated fashion in Hebrews 11. So instead, I've, I'm going to go back and kind of tell the story that starts in the book of Genesis, chapter 37. And I would encourage you at some point later today to get your Bibles out and read the story of the life of Joseph. You can do it in about 30 minutes. As I said before, it starts in Genesis chapter 37. You will find some amazing things 
that you can put in place in your own life to help build Christian character in you. But let me give it to you in a nutshell here this morning. First of all, know this. There is hope for you. Regardless of how you see yourself, regardless of what sort of spiritual condition you find yourself in this morning, there is hope for you because your family is not as messed up as Joseph's family was and the story ends well. So if Joseph and his messed up family can find this bright spot at the end of the story, I believe that you can too. Joseph's dad had two wives at the same time and he had children by both of those women and by each of their personal assistants. So four women in the house at the same time, 12 sons being raised together as one family. Is there any possible way that that thing could have gone smoothly? I don't think so. Was there any way that that thing could have ended up healthy? I really doubt it. And it didn't. Joseph's dad compounded the difficulty by making it plain that among those four women, he had one favorite wife and that her two sons were loved more than all of the others. And they were the two youngest boys. On top of that, he said that the oldest of those two, number 11, Joseph, was his absolute favorite He treated him better than he did the other boys, and he gave him generous gifts, and he exempted him from work, and he often would keep him close to himself while he sent the rest of the guys out to do labor. Joseph's dad didn't help things any. Joseph didn't help things either. He had what turned out to be prophetic dreams, and that's not his fault. Those were given to him by God. But he had this habit of telling them to his family and and lording those dreams over them. And that was his fault because the dreams that Joseph told to the family always seemed to be about how important he would one day be and how the rest of the family would eventually bow their knee before him, mom and dad included. This stuff was happening when he was just a teenage kid and his older brothers were all grown men out there um, working and living respectable adult kind of lives. Joseph, over the course of his lifetime, however, didn't have it all easy because the text tells us that his brothers hated his guts. Yeah, newsflash, right? His brothers hated him. It says that they never could find it within them to speak even one single kind word to him. Joseph had eaten his fill of his brother's hatred and and mean treatment, and they had eaten enough of their dad's favoritism, and they'd eaten enough of Joseph's dream talk, and one day it all just kind of came to a head. Joseph, who'd been allowed to remain at home with dad most of the time, was sent out to check on his brothers who were herding sheep in the hill country several days walk away, and those guys had been out there for a long time. So their father sent Joseph out there to check on him. Joseph thought that his job was to rat out his brothers. When you read the book of uh, Genesis later today, and you read the life of Joseph, you will find that very early on in his life story, it tells us that he had, he had early formed the habit of reporting to his dad every wrong thing that his brothers did. So as his father was probably sending Joseph out just to check on the well-being of the older boys, Joseph's thinking, yeah, I better take some notes. And when I get back home, then dad's going to find out what the boys have been up to. Well, the boys had had enough and they saw Joseph coming and they decided that uh, they should take some kind of action to put an end to the nonsense in their family. Being reasonable people, they uh, took some ideas and then a vote. 
And the first vote was this, let's murder him. And it passed. It passed. But one brother decided, the oldest, he decided that he had the power of veto. And so he overruled them. And that day, fortunately, Joseph was not murdered. Now, the older brother came up with a substitute idea, right? When you present the problem, you also need to bring a solution. So he brought a solution. He said, let's do this. There's a deep pit over here. Let's just throw him in there. And then we won't technically be guilty of murder because we didn't kill him, but we'll just let the elements do what they do, and he'll, I don't know, starve to death or die of thirst. And the rest of the brothers thought, yeah, okay, that that seems good enough. It should be noted that Reuben, the oldest, who came up with this plan, uh, also um, had a plan to rescue the boy. He didn't like him, but he didn't want any part in the murder. And his plan was to rescue the boy and make sure that he got back home to their family. But he must have taken a break to go and uh, look after the sheep. And while Reuben was gone and the rest of the boys were standing there, probably spitting down into the pit, uh, a caravan came along that was headed from the Middle East down into Egypt for trading purposes. And the boys thought, this is perfect. This is perfect. It's better than killing him. We will sell him as a slave. He's been the favorite. He's been treated like royalty. He will end up scrubbing the feet of people for the rest of his life. We like the poetic justice. And so they sold younger brother to the slave traders who headed off down into Egypt. You can imagine that Joseph had a reason to be angry and unforgiving. Well, in Egypt, it went just like you thought. He was sold to a government official. Genesis says plainly that, however, that God was with Joseph, and whatever he touched, it just prospered. Any project that his master gave him, it went amazingly well, and he ended up looking like a huge success. So his master soon put him in charge of bigger things because he wanted his bigger projects to receive the benefit of this success that went wherever Joseph went. Soon his master put him over his entire household, and in control of every slave that he ever owned, and and between his success and his good looks and his influence and his power, trouble came. The master's wife began to be attracted to Joseph, and she soon made her play for him. Joseph, however, had a conscience and was not an idiot and knew what would happen to a slave that fell into that trap, so he refused. And eventually, the woman decided that if she couldn't have him, she was just going to accuse him of attempted rape, and the master went easy on him, threw him in prison for life, when he could have had him executed. But Joseph now had a second, very big reason to be angry and unforgiving. Joseph was a model prisoner, and God hadn't left him, so he soon became a recognized leader in the prison, but not of a gang, a a leader that the warden could count on, and so he began to put him in charge of other prisoners. Before long, he's running the prison from the inside. Two people who worked in the Egyptian ruler's inner court ended up in prison, and they too were blessed slash um, cursed with prophetic dreams. But they didn't know what the dreams meant. Joseph said, well, I don't know what the dreams mean either, but God always does. So if you tell them to me, I'll just pray and ask God to give me the meaning, and I'll share that with you. So they did. And all he asked in return was that if they ever saw the light of day, if they ever got out of the hole, that they would work for his release. And one of those guys ended up executed, and the other guy ended up right back in the king's service in no time at all. But he forgot about Joseph. And once again, Joseph had a reason 
to be angry and unforgiving. Those reasons were starting to pile up. One day, the Egyptian king had one of those mystical dreams that he couldn't interpret for himself, and that reminded one of his right-hand men about the guy who'd helped him out in prison, Joseph. And in the blink of an eye, Joseph was now standing before the most powerful ruler in all of the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt, who described his dream that troubled him to this former inmate. Joseph again made it clear that he couldn't interpret dreams, but he knew the God who was the God of dreams. And if Pharaoh would share the dream, he would ask his God for an interpretation. And it happened just like you know. When he did, God revealed that a time of great prosperity was coming, but that it would soon be followed by a seven-year famine. And the king knew that he needed a very wise man to oversee the empire's preparation for that time period. And he knew he had his man in Joseph, so he hired him right there on the spot, literally making him second in command over the entire Egyptian empire. Like you studied in school, the Egyptians who ruled the known world of their day, Joseph, former slave, former inmate second in command. In the middle of those famine years, Joseph's older brothers were sent by their dad, Jacob, to buy food in Egypt. Joseph's younger brother had taken over his dad's favorite, so he was kept at home. But when the 10 brothers showed up to buy grain, guess who was in charge? You got it, Joseph. And that is the making of a great movie, isn't it? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Better yet, he's wearing all that Pharaoh garb. None of his brothers even recognized him. You know what this means. Joseph gets to mess with them, right? What would have gone through your heart and mind if you were in that situation? The years of hateful treatment, hateful words, hateful attitudes that you'd suffered from your brothers as a kid, probably. Being thrown in a hole in the ground to die of hunger and thirst by your brothers? Being sold as a slave, being treated as a slave, being falsely accused of attempted rape, years in prison, unreturned favors followed by more years in prison. You know those things would have gone through your mind, right? And they probably did for Joseph too. And Joseph had a rather dramatic way of revealing to his brothers who he was, but in the end, he chose to demonstrate the character that had been forged in him during those painful years, instead of giving in to feelings of anger and bitterness, though he had plenty of reasons. He chose to forgive his brothers and all those who had mistreated him along the way. See, character is learned and developed in day-to-day living. It's built by a series of choices that each of us makes about how we are going to respond to the minor slights and bumps and bruises and challenges that we face each day. Character is learned and built in the day-to-day, but it is tested and found to be true by going through real difficulties. Put it another way, character is determined in the gray every day. And it's revealed when the fire of hardship puts us to the test. In Joseph's life, we can see these things. Joseph's life was characterized by just one thing, forgiveness. His brothers hated him. He forgave them. They verbally hammered on him every single day. 
He forgave them. They conspired to plot his murder. He forgave them. They sold him into slavery. He forgave them genuinely. Joseph was a man who lived free from soul-withering bitterness because he made a principled decision to forgive those who offended him. Your life, your heart can be free from those same things. It really can. Maybe you're thinking, Pastor Cliff, I don't know about that. I've been trying for a very long time to forgive people, but it just doesn't work. I remember every bad thing that they've ever done to me, every bad word they've ever spoken against me. Those things still make me hurt. They still make me feel bad. They still make me angry. It's been years ago, but I I can't seem to let go. I know I haven't really forgiven them. I just just don't know how or if it's ever going to happen for me. If that's the condition in which you find yourself, I think you're in the right place today. Forgiveness is among the most difficult things that we are called to do as the followers of Jesus. And I'll admit that it sure can seem impossible. I forget all kinds of things. I forget where I put my car keys. I forget what time I'm supposed to pick my kids up from school virtually every day. I forget which day of the month our board meets. That's why I have Pastor Bill. But I remember hateful looks, and I remember the times that people refused to speak to me, and I remember the times that I sure wish people would have refused to speak to me, right? When I remember the offenses, it's hard to forgive them. I struggle with that just like you do. Today, I'm not going to teach forgiveness as a character quality, because I think there's one other thing that we must put in place first if we are ever going to be able truly to forgive. And it's this, humility. Humility isn't thinking of yourself as worthless or of little value, because those things just aren't true. Life can't be built on lies. So if you think that you're worthless or very nearly so, you've believed a lie. God doesn't believe that about you. He actually thought you were worth sending his own son to die in your place just so that he could have a chance, not a guarantee, a chance at relationship with you. You're incredibly valuable. Humility isn't thinking of yourself as worthless. It's thinking of God as supreme. And it's thinking of your offender as of equal value to you. Humility is recognizing God as supreme and your offender as of equal value with you. Joseph was humble. That's why he was able to forgive. Joseph's father died, and when he did, his his brothers started to freak out a little bit. They were pretty sure that Joseph had just played nice as long as the old man was around. But now he would exact his revenge. So the brothers got together, they concocted a story, and they wrote it in a letter, and they sent it to Joseph. The letter said two things. It said that right before Jacob had died, he had said, now boys, make sure your brother knows that he's supposed to forgive you. Yeah, right. And it contained a formal apology for their actions. Lick the stamp, send it to big brother. Dad said, you have to forgive us. And by the way, we're sorry. But listen to what the Genesis text says next. When Joseph received the message, He broke down and wept. Why? Because he knew that his brothers still didn't trust him. 
He knew that his brother still didn't believe that he had genuinely forgiven them. Joseph received the message. He broke down and wept. And then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we're your slaves, he said. But Joseph replied, listen to this. Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I should punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. The humility in that story is found in this one rhetorical question that Joseph asked. Am I God that I should punish you? Joseph knew his place, and it wasn't equal to God, and it wasn't one step better than his brothers. I mean, 17-year-old Joseph didn't seem to understand that, so he lorded his prophetic dreams over his family. But adult Joseph, through the suffering, through the difficulty, through the success and the failures, had somehow managed to learn the lesson. Former slave Joseph, he understood that. Former inmate Joseph, he, he, he got it. Former success, Joseph understood. Former prophetic interpreter, Joseph understood, got it. Something in all those years of success and failure and suffering had taught him that he was no God, nor was he the best man on the planet, better than all the others. It had taught him to leave the judging and the justice to God and to wait in the place of humility before God and before his fellow man. And it was in that space, it was carved out by humility that the anger slipped away and the forgiveness came to his heart and the love and the prayers for his brothers began to flow out of it. Do you struggle with unforgiveness today? Then perhaps you need to deal with something else first. It's the very first building block of Christian character. Humility. Only a humble heart can become a forgiving heart. Since you're in a church today, I'm relatively certain that you don't think you're an actual God. But if you are still reserving for yourself the right to judge others, if you think you are completely justified in holding on to your anger and offense and grudge, then humility has not yet done its work in you. If you still look at your offenders as offenders... And as people you'll never allow to come close again, then humility is likely absent from your heart. And until your heart is humbled, you're going to continue to stew in the juices of resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness. And you and I both know that you don't want that because it will turn you into a stunted, withered version of, of the man or woman that you were born to become. And God dreamed you up a long time ago. So what to do about it if you find yourself in that place today? I want to share with you today the first two steps, and I think you and God can work the rest of it out together. The first step is to make a decision to humble your heart. Today it probably looks like 
coming to kneel at this altar to pray when I open it in a few moments. Confessing to God that you've justified your anger and unforgiveness and that today you want to relinquish your hold on them. Ask him to help you to truly desire that because you might have a little bit of a divided heart. Part of you wants to let go. Part of you can't stand the thought of it. Ask him to begin to heal the wound in your heart that tempts you to hold on to the anger and unforgiveness. And I promise, hear that word, promise that he will help you with it if you ask him sincerely. He will. The second step is one that you'll have to practice in the world beyond this sanctuary, and it's this. Stop talking about it. Stop talking about it. Stop talking about all the wrongs that have been done to you. Stop retelling the story. Stop rehearsing in your head what you would say to them if you had had half a chance. Stop imagining what you wish you had said to them back when it first happened. Stop talking to yourself and to the others about the about people who have hurt you. Decide instead that you're going to do this. Just let it go. And the next time you catch yourself thinking about it again, just stop. The next time you get a chance to tell the story, don't. The followers of Jesus begin our journey by crossing the threshold of humility, repositioning ourselves under the sovereign God and on equal footing, not one step above our brothers and sisters. It's from that position of humility that we will find a willingness to forgive. And many other godly character traits can be put in place in our lives too. We were born for this. You know that, don't you? We were born for this, for this strength and courage of heart that dares to take a a flying leap into a a full-hearted faith and forgiveness that comes from a place of humility. So stunt people, let's start here today by seeking humility before we attempt to take even one more step. Julie, can I ask you to just come and play something softly and I'll invite the congregation to stand. And uh, pray with me. Just bow your heads, close your eyes. Maybe you want to come and kneel at this altar today because you realize, ah, there's been a heart problem, not a history problem. It's not about it's not about the story of what people have done to me. It's that my heart was in the wrong place before it ever happened, and I decided to take delight in that wound and, and storing up all the bitterness and hurt and anger. I don't know, maybe you don't want to confess all of that. But you just understand that there's a heart problem, there's a humility issue that the Lord wants to deal with in your life today. If that's the case, listen, health problems aside, for those who can't kneel, all right? We, We get it if you can't kneel. But if you're a person who's struggling with humility... It's opposite, pride, spiritual pride. I really strongly want to encourage you to leave your seat and kneel. And here's why. Because if you're choosing to remain in your, in your seat, in your pew, when you don't have a physical impediment, it might be because pride is still doing its thing. I don't want people to know I struggle with that. I don't want, I don't want to be the object of the sermon today. You're not. Joseph was. If you feel the voice of God tugging at your heart. I would encourage you, do something that is an act of humility. It will soften your heart. 
Before your heart ever gets there, your feet may have to. Let's pray. Lord, just call whoever you're going to call to this place of prayer. We'll wait and listen for just a moment. Forgive us our sins. Some of us have harbored pride in our hearts all of our lives long. Forgive us. Because of it, we've looked at you differently than we ought to. We've had a false conception of who you are. It's made it hard for us to draw close to you made it hard for us to forgive anyone who does wrong against us because we feel like I'm, I don't deserve that. I deserve better. Jesus was mistreated and he asked one simple question. Is the servant better than his master? Jesus, you willingly put yourself in the place where you would be mistreated, wronged, sinned against. But we have counted ourselves too good for that. Forgive us. When pride goes away, it does not deflate a human heart. It it fills it with contentment and love with a sense of peace a peace that we could never know as long as we are proud so we pray again Lord forgive us of our spiritual pride and in the wake of that decision pray that you would help us to grant forgiveness to those who've sinned against us. Will you help us please, Lord? Lord, we're just going to take a few minutes to silently converse with you about the nature of our pride as we've seen it. Would you shine the light of truth into our hearts? Help us to see wherever pride has taken root and where humility can come and heal we listen for your voice cleansing work don't just clean us up transform us we need to be different from here forward we don't want to walk out of here into the same mess 
that we stepped out of when we when we knelt at this altar. So I pray for my brothers and sisters who've confessed to you today. I pray for transformation from the inside out. Make us humble people. Humble servants. Who in humility forgive just as we've been forgiven. Lord, heal the hurts. There are some wounds. You're being irrigated by tears right now. Heal the wounds. Thank you that we can count on you to do it. In your holy name we pray. Amen. As always, when there are people kneeling at the altar, I want to ask you to just kind of preserve the atmosphere of prayer in this room. I have a foyer and a beautiful world out there in which we can visit. Can you just keep it kind of quiet in here so people can finish their conversations with God? As you go this day, go humbly. Be His disciples. Remember to do one thing this week, to connect with God, with other Christ followers, to grow in your faith, and to serve somebody else. So may you know His peace. Amen.